Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, put your dancing shoes on. Be mindful of your approach. And we will always remember them. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. Here we go. And we went (laughs) to George's house again. And we recorded this episode, folks, from the kitchen sunroom. Yeah. It's pretty sunny on you, man. You were sweating. (laughs) It was. Yes. I was, yeah. I was sitting in front of a heater, with with sun glaring down oh, on my man. back. I was uh, wearing a sweater. It was warm, yeah. but and not as warm as our guest. No, he was he was the warmest of all, <laughs> the more warmest and oldest guest we have had on on uh, of course. <laughs> That's the one. That's our <laughs> podcast. Yeah, oh, the oldest by like fifty years because George is 96 yeah and so everyone all the listeners are like okay who's 46 on their podcast now (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay everybody else (laughs) yeah except for roman maybe 40 40 ish years is you know we won't we won't name ages but i think we've maybe had someone yeah i think babe (laughs) oh (laughs) hi babe (laughs) but yeah we can officially say we've had someone 11 years old and someone 96 yeah we've uh, we've hit all the age groups how are you feeling about aging, John? Um, how am I feeling about aging? You know, it's one of those things. You asked me this on in my episode a couple episodes ago, and I kind of ended off by sharing that that's one of my greatest fears. <laughs> <laughs> that I think as I get older, I'm going to lose my my muscle. I'm going to lose my speed. I'm going to lose my strength. Mm-hmm. I'm going to lose my will to live. You know, all those things. Oof. <laughs> the last one was kind of uh, bit no. of an eye opener no, there. That, I was a bit of it was a little was, shocking. Yeah, I was joking there, but uh, I mean, it's it's unavoidable, right? I'm I'm 43, and you mean aging is unavoidable? Yeah, aging is unavoidable because those other things aren't necessarily right. Yeah, exactly. Because strength, you can define that however you want. Yeah. Um, your your youth, as George showed, it's all about mindset. Yeah, in fact, what do we say in the in the little intro there? Put your dancing shoes on. You might wonder what that has to do with an episode about a 96-year-old and, and a World War II veteran. The fact is, George is still dancing, folks, and he even showed us some moves in his kitchen. He moves quicker than, than you, you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John's here lumbering around. Well, yeah, and I'm George. poor. We've talked about that. I'm not gracious at all, or grace, or uh, which one is it? I'm graceful. Not, I'm not graceful. Yeah. But you are gracious. Yay! We'll figure that out someday. No, but George still had the moves, and um, yeah. Yeah, and he talked about doing the tango. He's also he's he's still got the moves with the ladies too because he's <laughs> he does he uh, he met someone well well in his seventies on a cruise on a cruise oh he met her and then like a few days later they were married or something maybe I wasn't listening <laughs> yeah. to the story super I think close. they got married on day seven of the cruise <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, he's got the moves yeah and he's got the he's got the attitude and he he treats you'll hear him everyone but he treats every moment with um with absolute gratitude and uh and presence and maybe that's what keeps him so young and and maybe that's why he's still here telling his stories at 96 i think we all have that desire like how can we live on forever which isn't going to happen but we all want to live to old age and we don't all live to old age and that's the reality but we want to know how and uh if anything that i learned from george it's um it's got a lot to do with mindset. 
Absolutely. And, and gratefulness. Um, I, I can't to, to me. Well, he did talk about eating oatmeal yeah. and I was kind of hoping he'd, he'd say, and I still have a bag of potato chips every night <laughs> just so I, I could have that excuse. Yeah. But he never said that. No, he didn't. So he does like the oatmeal. Um, oatmeal. Well, there's no spoil in this episode because it is a, a true gem as is George. And he, I'm, he didn't really want us to leave. No. <laughs> and no. I didn't really, I didn't want to say goodbye, but, uh, yeah, he, he left us with some of his apples and, and uh, with a, and with a very touching hug. In yeah. fact, we, we, he, George is a hugger. We, we hugged him two or three times mm-hmm. and I was fine with it. Oh yeah. I think Andrew was as well. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm a hugger, <laughs> but no, what, what a gentle, what a gentle soul and what a grateful guy. Um, he's just so engaged with his life. Mm-hmm. He's not at all like, oh, I'm 96. You know, I'm, you know, it's, I'm just going to get ready for the end. As far as George is concerned, life's just beginning, folks. Hmm. I mean, he's, he's still got another 96 in him. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, one thing I do want to say about how we met George was Andrew and I were talking about future guests. And we, we kind of said, boy, it would, it would sure be nice to have a World War II veteran on to talk about their experience. And we could kind of release it as a, as a remembrance day episode. Mm-hmm. And we both kind of concluded the conversation by saying, is like how many how many still exist and how many are still on the island mm-hmm. and we we kind of ended off with like oh we probably won't find anyone and we moved on and then literally 24 hours later a friend of mine renee thank you so much renee um she she said she sent me a message on facebook and just said oh hey john i, I got the perfect guest for you um you know i i she, renee's a amazing amazing um house cleaner and she says i clean the house of this guy Name's George, George Brewster, super, super interesting guy, tells amazing stories, and he's a World War II veteran, 96 years old. It's like, maybe you should talk to him. It was one of those moments where it was like, wow, was it like the universe conspiring to make this happen? Mm-hmm. It was so cool and just reminded me of the power of connection once yeah. again, which we talk a lot about on the podcast. And so thanks so much, Renee, for the for the connection. And um, oh, what a one of the, one of the most interesting conversations I've had, period. Yeah, and I've spent a lot of time studying world war ii um i'm interested in in the dynamics the politics the the mentality that people must have had in that era and being able to sit down and speak with somebody who was on the front lines was uh was a very rich experience and my grandpa and and your grandfather as well served in world war ii and, mm-hmm. and they're not around anymore so it was almost a an opportunity to connect with with past generations and and people who uh sacrificed that for for the freedom of of generations to come like us and i think that's why we really wanted to have this episode was to give that respect and and say thank you to people who have come before us and and the sacrifices that are incomprehensible to us and our cozy little homes in in our land of democracy where we complain about wi-fi um you know there were people who he spoke about this he thought he was going to die he thought it was gonna be the end of his life he was in the air force in world war ii where people were dying by the thousands and it didn't matter it was his life was worth sacrificing for the the freedom and the protection of of people of innocent people who were dying in on a different continent so yeah it's if if you needed a a perspective check listeners um you know just 
sit down and and enjoy and and reflect on that and um yeah find out the meaning of honor and, and sacrifice yeah for me it was one of my most favorite conversations i've every year i watch a world war ii movie or documentary just as a way of you know making sure i don't forget we call it remembrance day because because we need to remember what they did and and to actually sit down and talk to one of these real life heroes who was there and and part of the war and part of the experience and part of the sacrifice was just uh, astonishing I'm, I'm just I'm so excited for you to hear this episode listeners and and please please definitely share this with 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 many people so we can continue to remember these these um these brave souls that that fought so that we can have these freedoms so th- thank you thank you george and thank you renee and uh, we will never forget <laughs> okay, I was up in the Arctic with about uh, 48 men, plus my sergeant and I, that made it 50. And I think the, I think the numbers are correct, it's immaterial really, it was just about that number, more or less, or less. it doesn't matter. And uh, we were teaching survival, we showed them how you build igloos. Each block is balanced on the lower there, lower here, and up in that corner as you go up, and you go up in a spiral. You have a perfect keystone on each block as you build. So even when they're leaning in like this, they're resting here and here, not in the middle, they topple, mm-hmm. see? But, and not in the middle here, on the, t- on the top, where they're resting, or on the side that rests against the last block. Each one is a perfect keystone. And the Eskimos have been doing this for centuries. And what did they know about trigonometry and things? They don't. They have an uncanny way of doing things that's just making them right. And no, no more than and no less than that's required. Mm-hmm. I wish we had that in our society. We've lost a lot of what we had. Just that exactness and that accuracy. Yes, but this one is about something else because... They brought lunches up with this airplane, it was a Hercules, a 132. And they had enough lunches for all of us. But they forgot the two leaders, my, my sergeant and myself. So there's only, we'll say, 48 lunches. Hmm. And so I said to the cook, can you throw some stuff together for my sergeant and I? We're not fussy, but we will need something because we'll be in the air 10 hours and I haven't eaten for about four. And I said, we'll need it. And they said, yes. So they made us very generous lunches for the two of us, fortunately. They took the lunches. I When I asked for the lunches to be broken out, they said, oh, oh we made a mistake. We left them back at the base. We put them because we knew they'd freeze on the aircraft. You break your teeth on a sandwich, okay? <laughs> yeah. When it's that temperature. Yeah. So, and it happened to people, and with a, a plate or something, it was, little things matter. Mm-hmm. So, their lunches had all, 48 were gone, but we had two. Now, when it came time to eat, I said, I have some, some sad news for you, and I have some good news. I'm going to tell you the truth right off the bat. They left your lunches. 
the people took them off. I didn't know they'd taken them off, and I so therefore didn't know that they had brought them back. That's not my job. And somebody slipped up. And I talked to the sergeant about this, and I said, if you want to take your lunch down in the little toilet we have here and eat it so they won't see you, and if it gives you great satisfaction, I urge you to do it now, because I am going to take mine and divide it up amongst the men. He said, they won't get much, and I said, well, you can make it more if you want to, and he said, I'd like to, sir. I'd like to do, I think it sounds good. So he said, okay, you've got two, two of your own leaders. I want you to get your groups separated, and I want, we're going to give you one lunch each for your 25 people, including you. And they said, okay, what about you? He said, well, I deserve it for not looking after you better. I'll go without Anyway, and the sergeant said, anyway, the end of it was they get each a morsel that was something like that. Oh. And out of the thermos, they each had a tablespoon, whatever it was. And if they could do around with a teaspoon, they did it. And the amazing thing was, I, I was in good graces because I didn't commit the crime or the fault. I wasn't guilty, but I tried to remedy it in the only way I knew how, and it came straight out of the scripture. You do what you can with what you got, and that's it. And you make sure your men are looked after the best you can with what you got. It isn't much, but you men enjoy it. And just bear in mind that's what you're supposed to do is enjoy it. Mm-hmm. and be thankful. It could have been worse. <laughs> what what year do you think that was, George? That would have been around close on to what, 52, I guess. Hmm. And you were flying? I think, I'm not sure. It might have, no, it might have been later in the 50s. I was flying in the Hercules. I wasn't piloting it. But in, in the Arctic? In the Arctic. And I can only imagine just flying in the Arctic in in those years... That must have been fairly harrowing or challenging just itself. I can like the the weather conditions and iced planes and and landing in in air you know airstrips that are often frozen probably and there's ground drift when the ground drift goes over, it's like a moving sea, and you mm-hmm. can't see the ground, yeah, it only has to be this thick hmm. if you can't see it, where are you yeah <laughs> up there, down. yeah. So you come in like a skipping or stone and ease it down, just like I told you about a story about a young man. And we had the best of pilots. A lot of them end up with Air Canada if Air Canada gets lucky because they've had good training and good discipline. And something is real lacking today to a great degree. Anyway, the men were... they. What touched me is when they divided the food, they gave the sergeant and I an equal amount to them. Hmm. They didn't have to do that. That's what they did. So they're including us with them. There's something cohesive about that. There's something reassuring to me as a leader that they are understanding we are all in this together and this is what we do and we're surviving. I want to do, put real meaning into survival. It goes on all the time in many ways. And for us to survive, we got to show that kind of consideration for each other. 
but it's straight out of the book. Well, and it also tells you a lot about the type of leadership they had. Yeah. Right? Because there's, there's a lot of modern leaders that perhaps wouldn't be worthy of that shared bread, you know, fr from, the, from the people. Well, that's that, what touched me in right? the end. Is, is they respected you to that degree in your leadership. They respected me, right? even though this had happened to all of us. Exactly. Yeah. They knew where I'd go. I'd sacrifice myself for them for sure. as a leader. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to remember with others, to sacrifice yourselves. I mean, not just in big things, but in little things every day. We can do this. And the, Anyway, the story worked, and they said, what inspired you to do this? And I said, it's a book called the Holy Bible. <laughs> and I said, this is my biggest book of knowledge. It's a book of facts. It's a book of complete wonder to me because it is so full. It's all you need to lead a, a wonderful, exciting life. Everything's in there in one book. Can you believe it? <laughs> and I started with my earliest Sunday school teachers and my very first Bible when I was nine years old in January of 32, and it was signed by all the people, and there it is, my little holy, I still have it. I carried it overseas with me during the war. Your observations on that were true. It was a great experience to be accepted by them because I accepted them, and I will say this when I count, from the hockey, from the football game, uh, in in uh, Vancouver. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you were at the BC Lions game this past weekend, yes, correct? Yes. You can ask me the questions here. Yeah. So, <laughs> so tell our listeners about that. You're at the you're at the Lions game, and I think they're honoring the veterans. Were they not? They were all of them. Everybody who served, really. Mm -hmm. We got to forget. I mean, we got to remember yeah. the heroes in everyday life are the wives who stayed behind, mm. the people who worked at all the jobs that fed us, kept us clothed, all those who couldn't do these jobs, they did other jobs. Yeah. They built what they had to, and we won because we pulled together like one group of people. We pulled together, and there's an awful lot to be said for that. Again. I feel it's my Christian upbringing that tells me these things because there's so many times I want to pull apart and reach me, me and my selfish stuff, thing, my selfish person mm -hmm. because I have many faults which I don't care to go into too much right at the moment but I'm continually trying to become a better person and I intend to do so until the end of my days. And, and as a 96-year-old man, to say you're continually trying to become a better person, that's an amazing statement. That, uh, you know, you don't arrive. We're all continually, you know, struggling to, to become better versions of ourselves, right? Yes. And that's what we talk about we can, on the podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We continue to learn from each other. Yeah. Not up there from a podium. No. With each other. Mm -hmm. We continue to learn, and even the most insignificant person in the group may be the one who makes the difference between you all surviving. Mm -hmm. I taught survival. I know full well how people, when we, it takes a certain amount of discernment to see the capability of other people, what they can do, yeah, and sure. what some of the things, not trying to make them 
fit square pegs into round holes or vice versa. No, fit them in with find out. Ask them, what is your favorite thing? Or you find, and use them in that capacity if you can, because you'll need all of the things you can get and more. So, George, at the BC Lions game, yeah. Um, you're with you're with you know some, your fellow fellow soldiers and what what are did you guys come out at halftime? Um, was yeah. it a halftime thing? Yeah, or yeah. We we come out. They put us in the stands until then. Yeah, and they were very good to us. Yeah, and we uh, yeah they, we came out at halftime and when we went down we didn't know what we were in for. <laughs> yeah. but there were six. Jeeps down there own with their owners who are driving them. Nice. And they're from every walk of life, I guess. Yeah. They seem to be. And they had restored these Jeeps and they were in pretty good working condition. And when one of them failed a little, the guy from the Jeep behind him knew how important he gotta get him out of the way or he's not going. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. And that that was a wonderful thing to see. Just what he did. He Got out of his, went up, they together, they mm-hmm. did it. And did so, you go out on the field? Yeah, we drove right around, completely around the nice. field, around the perimeter. <laughs> how did it feel having 50,000 people cheering you on? I don't know how many, I didn't try to count them. I, that, I ran out of That'd fingers, be hard. Yeah. Fingers and toes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a yeah. big stadium, though. It big, was a big, big pack, stadium. Big there were a lot of there. people there. And uh, it was amazing because... I never, when I enter a room, I don't, I stand up for the ladies, but I don't expect people to stand up for me. Mm-hmm. I'm just an ordinary man trying to do some things which are sometimes more than I am capable of. With God's help, I exist, I have managed so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a long time. <laughs> but anyway we they did they stood up and they cheered and they shouted i could hear my name called even from the stands wow. and i met people in the ferry they'd say hey george how you doing the people from comox or some other place i felt so good hmm. and i thought i don't deserve this but i might as well soak it up while yeah, i'm here <laughs> for sure how, how does that feel that that people even you know 70 years after world war ii finished people are still showing their appreciation for for the sacrifices that were made how, how does that make you feel well it made me feel that i had to remember i was a survivor the others weren't there the people we were trying to remember they're not there they were my friends. They had wives and sweethearts and families, and they had dreams and and so on. But they were willing to do whatever it took to stop the war. Their goal wasn't for power, glory, or riches. Their their only purpose for most of those people, they they weren't killers. They didn't want to kill. They tried to take out objectives. If there are people there and they're enemy, that's so be it. They shouldn't have been there. They shouldn't be over Britain. They shouldn't be using the sky to drop bombs on innocent men, women, and children. And to me, those people had to be stopped, and you fight fire with fire if you have to. It can work, and it can be very effective. In this case, it was, because they stirred up a hornet's nest when they got those Brits going. 
and the Brits don't quit. Even when they were beaten, they kept on fighting until they won. And I admire that kind of indomitable courage. I want to be with people like that who protect the young and the innocent, the weak and the hurting. And I remember you saying, George, when you found out that there was women and children over there that were dying, Yes. Um, it, it it broke your heart and, and and caused you to rise up and say, I have to do something. I had. And, and that's what that's why you went over. I, I remember yes. you saying that. Yes. The strangest part was after the war, I made friends with many Luftwaffe pilots. Mm-hmm. And they were going through, many of them were not, they're not party members. Most of them weren't. Right. The party members were vicious, mm-hmm. the core. But the German people who were pressed into that service, they had to do it, or else their, their whole families would suffer as a result. They had their own problems, and they were as real as we were. And after the war, we could be friends and hug each other as brothers and say, it's, it's what, made, what caused this. People with ambitions and needed more wealth, more property, they want to take over other people's things. That's what caused it. There's greed, an urge for glory and all kinds of pomp and ridiculousness. It, it was not to remember people, their kindnesses and the wonderful people we've lost in the war. This war was caused by people, the leaders, they caused that by failing to stand up when they could have and letting it go too far and then having to fight harder to compensate for all their mistakes. The ordinary people paid. The ordinary people did extraordinary things. The heroism I saw all around me has astonished me and has lasted me for a lifetime that they were better men than I can ever be or ever hope to be. And I lost so many of them. And why? I don't know. It, war is not a nice thing. But I say this, it's better to fight a war honorably so long as some of us remain alive and able to defend others. We should do it with our last breath. Well, and George, you were a pilot in the war. Yes, um, I was. And um, I think it was a beautiful thing you just said about talking about the German pilots. The, quote, enemies were in some ways just like you. You know, they were doing something they they were forced to do, and and they were just, they were human beings. Yes, right. And my my grandfather fought in the First World War, and he tells me a story. He served in the medical corps, so his job was to run out there in the trench warfare and and you know attend tend to the people, um, you know, in the trenches and on the ground. It, it was you know pretty it was dangerous work. Dangerous work and and pretty pretty horrific. Mm-hmm. And, and he t- he t- told us a story one time where I, I never met him, but he told my dad has told the story about one time he jumped into into a trench to to start caring for someone and just just he was just in the flow and he was just started taking care of their leg and all of a sudden he looks up and it was a German soldier he didn't even re- recognize it and the German soldier was holding a gun at him and he just looked at him looked back down and just kept working and then just was on his way. And it was just one of those moments that where they just both recognized they were in a similar predicament, you know. And and that moment sort of transcended the overall war, 
you know what and, a, and it reminded me of, of what you were just saying there yeah that's a tremendous story mm-hmm. that's what i mean though is ordinary people like your father i mean yeah you think of it he's extraordinary to you mm-hmm. but or your grandfather yeah but what he did is a tremendously brave and courageous thing when you were focused on your job and his job was to help the germans on, was on to kill but he wanted to help, and he mm-hmm. needed it. Yeah. Hmm. What a quandary for that man. Oh, yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. I can kill him and die here because I didn't get to tend to. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I. Yeah. <laughs> do Thanks. Do you recall, George, any particular stories of heroism? You mentioned that um, you you witnessed some acts that were just beyond words, even for for how heroic it was does anything come to mind um, that is a very for me a very difficult question I wish I could because the, the war was filled with them I wouldn't even know where to start mm-hmm. but I I admire the heroism of the people who shielded Anne Frank, for example, and the many others, thousands of them, who did this at the risk of their own life. Hmm. They are the people like your grandfather, who went ahead. He just did his job. The guy shot him, so be it. Okay, look after yourself now, Chum. See where you feel. Yeah, you've often said, George, just we did what we had to do. Yes. That sort of is kind of an ongoing narrative about this is his these these men and women didn't didn't see themselves as heroes they were just doing what they had to do yes. they were doing the right thing and what they had to do yeah they felt afraid yes they yes it was difficult to 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 take take life but but they were doing what they had to do and were called to do there's a story called a higher calling but i can't get into it i don't want to diverge too much but that german pilot escorted a badly beaten up it's incredible that the American pilot could keep that bomber in the air and he went up and saw how badly damaged it was and he knew it was only a matter of time he was going to fall in the ocean he couldn't keep going on two motors come on and one sputtering all the time he flew alongside of them and finally he saluted them and went if the SS caught every whiff of that they, he would have been instantly executed mm-hmm. for allowing that man to escape. I, you know, is that close enough? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Is there is there a particular battle that comes to mind that that was, um, you would say, was was unforgettable um, in terms yes, of... Yes, it was. It was particularly brutal or challenging? Yes. I think of one because I was new on the wing and uh, new in 416 squadron and uh, we had returned. We'd spotted a train down there and we didn't like to attack the trains. I mean it was one of the worst targets because the normal train would have about three flat cars and there's two batteries on each flat car of four automatic firing Orlikan 20 millimeter cannons. We had two cannons and two 50 KLs and some machine guns. 
There's not much against all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. They are on a stable platform firing at us. We are on one that was moving and causing all We had to fly steadily into the face of that mm -hmm. in order to knock out the train. So when we get back, we were interrogated, and the interrogation officer said, did any of you see any flack from that train? And I said, well, I saw some tennis balls. That's what we referred to the... Uh, Things, tracer type of things, and, they, and uh, you could see them. I saw them, but apparently the others didn't. Well, uh, one man said something to me to the effect, are you sure you're not chicken? And I said, if you say that again, you're going to end up on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And I mean it. Yeah. I saw what I saw. I can't tell you how many there were or anything like that, the details, but I did see tennis balls. They had arms, and they were 20 millimeters. Well, this, uh, the leader, there was a fellow by the name of Webb Hart, and God bless him, he's a family man, had a family and children back home. He listened to the other man because he'd been in a squadron for a while, and he was... I don't know, he wasn't a close friend. Anyway, the, he listened to him. So we went over on the target, and as we approached the target, get rid of those belly tanks. They got you there, you won't need them. Now you can go back on your own tanks. You got some to spare. Mm -hmm. Ditch them. We dropped our tanks, all except the leader. His didn't drop. He should have gone back, but he was leading. Mm. Quandary. He decided to press on. So we went in on the train, he and I. He said, number two, come with me. Remainder, stay cover. That's in case Mr. Schmidt tried to bounce us. That's when they love to get us more trying to do it and squeeze us between the stuff down there and the stuff they got. Oh, it's not a happy war. Anyway, we were just going into it. Into it the thing was going along. I remember being up here to uh, on the starboard side of the train. It was going that way. And I came in, and I could see that when he turned, I was going to be behind him and catch everything that missed him. So I went down here to the other side, about 50 yards from him, so I could keep cover from anybody that came in. My job was to protect him. Mm -hmm. But boom, they hit him right in the tank, and it exploded. It was nearly empty. An, em an empty, almost empty tank is full of vapor, mm -hmm. and exploded. Mm -hmm. His whole aircraft blew up in pieces. Some of them went by me, and I was alone now. I didn't just ooched over. I got down as low as I could, so making it difficult, more difficult for the cannons and outline against the sky. Also, I came in on that train, and all I know is I have the city gun somewhere. The last picture in that, when I destroyed the train and blew it up, was a stack, and it occupied the whole thing. That's saying, you were too close, George far too close. But I I felt so angry at losing him. Mm -hmm. But it was the engine I was aiming at. It blew up, the steam, everything. But I was trying to get the rods that drive the wheels. Right. And I don't know whether he did or not. I couldn't see all that. It was just too tent on barely. It must have been a matter maybe a foot above that stack. That's all. That's too close. Wow. I was going in around 350, I'd say, on that attack, or maybe 400. 
they kept the aircraft down and I went around and they came back from from stem to gudgeon you might say or whichever and I raked that thing and I could see the gunners falling and jumping off the tr their flat cars because they didn't expect me to fight back like that mm. but I did mm -hmm. it was perhaps one of the most memorable things in my life it, others happened I'd taken out helped take out a couple of trains just days before yeah, but they I, they were shared and it wasn't the same this I had to do single handedly and they gave me full credit for it for that train a train is a magnificent thing to take out mm -hmm. it was loaded with troops too and I didn't spare them I'm afraid I did not so if they get out of it it's due to their something else. All I know is I went home and I felt sick. I was sick against the back of the aircraft because I don't like that sort of thing but at the same time I felt anger in there. At losing that man I felt needlessly if he'd only listened to me. But they couldn't do anything about it. He didn't and he paid with his life. Hmm. The other man I didn't talk to him for a long time. I just just tried to avoid him, that's all. He's doing his job the best he could, but I thought that he was more responsible for the death of my leader. And what would you say, George, motivated you after an experience like that, and it was just one of many, what motivated you or propelled you to get back into the plane and, and fly on another mission? Well... I focused on each thing as it came up, on each moment. I think that's a wonderful way to live out each day. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're intent upon, and that was my job. I had no other job but to keep myself in readiness to do what I was trained to do and do it. And that was my whole purpose in life at that time. Uh, I had volunteered to serve. And this is a job I got. Not everybody wanted it, or not everybody could do it. But I was able to. I did my best. I'd like to think I helped them make up their minds to leave other people alone and go because they were going the way back home then. But I didn't want them to regroup and just fight. As long as they're fighting and killing our people, you got to do what you got to do. And I think that's a story that many a man would tell you because there's nobody I'd rather fight with than Canadians. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Mm -hmm. They're, to me, the epitome. So George, what I'm curious about is, um, you know, you shared that, that engaging story um, of, you know, having to blow up a train full of, full of troops and, and feeling that almost sickness about having to do it and I'm sure, I'm sure that feeling um, was a recurrent thing that happened throughout the war. Um, so what I wondered is when, when, when you sort of landed and got back to your base or your shelter and, you're, and you, you were there alone with the thoughts of the day, um, how, did you, how did you keep those negative thoughts at bay so you were able to get back in the plane the next day? I was already thinking about tomorrow mm -hmm. 
I had this plan ahead. The best laid plans of ice and rain gang after glee and lead us not like grief and pain for promised joy, but you still have to plan. And if you don't, you make an adjustment to your plans, that's all. Hmm. So I was planning to go back and give it my best. What could I have done better that might have helped? I wish I could have saved my leader's life. Could I do it again and do it? I'll tell you this much, they were more inclined to listen to me. Mm -hmm. And the people who developed that, they made sure I got a copy of this because it was it was a one-man show. That was. You asked me, I told you most of the time it's not. I'm protecting somebody else while he does the job and he can have the glory and the medals, but I'm just looking after to make sure nobody bothers him when he's doing it. Then that's the way it was until you prove yourself worthy of leading a leader. And that means not from a position of putting fear into people, but inspiring them to do their very best. Mm -hmm. Together we can do it. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of a leader they want. They want the best, and they want the best out of the best. Mm. Because I think it takes everything we got, and it takes a faith and a trust. I believe that's so. I've seen a lot of evidence. What would you say is the greatest lesson that you learned from serving in the war about leadership that you then applied or, or pondered later in life? Well, most of our leaders got there because they were capable, more capable than the other members. They'd had a little more experience, they'd been exposed a little more, and they'd survived. That meant they were, they knew some things. Yet some got killed early in the game, first, second, third flight. If you could last a, a week, you had a good chance of going a month. If you could last a month, you might make it. Hmm. Well, I would go anywhere for a leader who shows concern about me. Mm -hmm. I have recall one leader, and who shall remain nameless, that he took me out on a mission without proper briefing, and I was obliged to do to follow him to protect him. And we went down on what looked like a market square, as a triangular thing, just like you find in some cities two streets converged into one, and it was in that place. It looked like a little town market to me. And I was following him, and I thought, uh, I couldn't see the enemy. I couldn't see anything that said to me, I couldn't, and I didn't know what I was looking for, to tell you the truth, or I might have seen through the camouflage. He fired at it, and when we get up, he said, did you fire number two? And I said, no, sir, I couldn't find the target. He said, you get down there. By the time I got down, they'd rolled back the stuff, and the guns were all out, and I was exposed. Hmm. And I went right in on them and fully expected not to come out. Hmm. I I thought it was a brutal thing he did. Mm -hmm. he, is, he is wrong in so many ways as a leader. He'd be... And often that's the way you find a good leader. He won't do that, the best of leaders. He actually ran up quite a score. He had a lot of recognition, a lot of medals. 
but he lost an awful lot of men who were flying, had the misfortune to have to fly for him, with him. Mm. I don't like that. Johnny Johnson was our group captain for a while, and he represented the very finest, an ordinary man's son, an ordinary woman, and he rose to greatness through being a good pilot and a, and a fine man, and he led his wing well. And I remember being before him and trembling because I had the Spitfire, we landed on runways on a farmer field. He had plowed it, so we couldn't use it. <laughs> <laughs> so they tried to put the furrows back, and then they had to cover it with wire mesh runway, if you know what I'm talking about. There's huge staples going in the ground to hold it down, but they work. And when you go along, you see a ripple ahead of the wheels. That's a retardant. And if you just do it wrong or something, or someone is loose, mm-hmm. you go, and I did. Mm-hmm. The only accident I ever had, on, but it happened to others. It, it was a, a, something we had to live with. And uh, when I went to him, I expected, you know, he could have said, well, if that's the best you can do, we better send you home. We need these airplanes. He didn't say that. He said, well, Brewster, you've been sent to me because you lost a prop. Fortunately, it's been replaceable and it didn't damage anything. And he said, do you think you could have avoided it? I said, perhaps if I went slower, but then we've been trained to get out there, sir. And he said, that's right, Brewster, just do the best you can, but be be wary. Never happened again to me, it happened to others. Mm-hmm. And I said, I thought, he understood his men, what they're going through yeah. in their minds. Yeah. He's just a fine example of a very fine leader. Yeah, what I heard from you was, it's not about position or accolades or medals, but it's more about that leader that loves his men and women and loves the people he leads and has skin in the game and and has got dirt under the fingernails who serves with them in the trenches so to speak who serves with them whatever they're doing yeah he'll stand at the end of the line yes just to show his respect for his men right yeah they know he doesn't have to right that's the reason he does it Mm. Mm -hmm. he wants to lead and very often and that allows them to become leaders yeah. Because he gives him a chance. He is not trying to get everything and deprive at the expense of whatever it takes. Mm. Yeah. I'd say that, yes, to yeah. me that's important. Uh, Charles Hoey, who was memorialized again, he's an ordinary chap who grew up here with, he had a brother, and he he was outstanding. He he went to the military college as soon as he got to Britain. That was his ambition. And uh, he had a brother. He got a military cross in very short order. And then after that, he was leading his men against an an objective that was extremely well defended. And they went in in darkness, and he was still being shot at from all angles, wounded. And when he got to the top, he, he, being wounded and everything, seized a gun from one of his comrades and charged right into the trench, wiping out the entire, I don't know how many, in 19 or 29, it doesn't matter. I think it might be one of those numbers. Wow. He wiped them out single-handed. Wow. But he was killed in the process. Hmm. 
But the men could remember him as being a tremendously inspiring leader. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to know what he could do, and he did it. He got the VC. His brother died about six months later in combat, and he had a military medal as well. They're just brave people. They're Canadians, well, true, and true just, Canadians. And just that image of the leader being out in front of the men doing what he asked them to do, as opposed to being, being, being behind them and barking out orders. And every time something went wrong, blaming it on them. Right, right. And every time something went right, taking all the credit. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we got lots of them. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's not true leadership. No. I'm curious, George, you served in the Air Force and made it to the end of the war. Yes. Which is an incredible feat of longevity. And at the same time, you're sitting here with us today in in your lovely home and at 96 years old. Another incredible feat of longevity. And I'm curious if you were to offer an explanation for what you owe that longevity to what might that be? I owe it all to my early Sunday school teachers. I loved them so much. They could do no wrong in my eyes. Now, I don't believe they ever did. One was a Miss Gunn from Scotland and her voice was as thick as porridge but as sweet as a nightingale. Oh, and she'd teach me, if you want to give a gift, Give something you treasure for Christmas. We were to give to, so from the people who didn't have very much, we gave it to the people who had even less. Mm -hmm. We learned, she taught her lessons well. And I remember that. My favorite little thing was a gun you could shoot, put matchsticks in and shoot your little (laughs) soldiers with. (laughs) And uh, the little piece of matchstick in the spring loader, (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) I gave that away because meant so much and my father knew I think he could buy them probably for 25 cents or less in those days my father got me another one because he knew how I was but that's my father and that's the way he was now you must have eaten a lot of oatmeal too George oh (laughs) I buy it in 25 pound bags yeah (laughs) and I buy it I get it from Yorkton Saskatchewan really oh yeah I know Yorkton (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it from the middle there, and it's really? uh, what we call old-fashioned uh, rolled oats. Yeah. It is kind of a thicker flake than some. Yeah? In the fullness I had. Of yeah, bullet. I see it right there, yeah. You still get it from Yorkton? Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, it comes through the store here. They buy it in. Oh, I see. And yeah. there, when I buy it, I get a, a little, it's a little cheaper that way than buying it in a one-pound bag. Yeah, good idea. And yeah. besides, uh, uh, 25 pounds doesn't last me that long no. anyway. Do you have it every day? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And sometimes twice. Really? Oh, yeah. It's good food. So oh. there you go, folks. Eat oatmeal twice a day. You might live to 96. And, yeah, okay. Drink a lot of water. <laughs> a lot of water. A lot so of water. water oatmeal. Oats, so fiber, water. Any, anything else? else, George, we... We need you here. Learn to sleep. Learn to relax. You can relax in the middle of anything if you compel yourself to. That's what people do. You see people lying on a bed of nails. Mm -hmm. The more nails there are, the better it is for them. If they're completely loaded with nails, it would just be a rough bed. (laughs) It would be a rough bed. (laughs) One one nail and it's going to go in there. It's going to hurt. (laughs) I don't think they sell those at Sleep Country, George. (laughs) No, you won't. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh no yeah you guys are funny <laughs> you so, make me laugh so relaxing we got oatmeal we got drinking lots of water and and on the relaxing you you even mentioned that and right that yeah. between flights when you were serving in the war you would just lie lie back in a chair and, and take a bit of a nap yes i was kind of in a way i was a team player but i was a, a loner I was only, I grew up doing things on my own, making model planes with four-foot wingspan that would take off the ground, making, inventing a folding propeller so it would glide longer after. Wow. Doing things like that helped me to re, uh, revalue not just learning facts mm -hmm. or following directions, but to develop conceptual thinking so that the piece of the jigsaw puzzle it's not all like looking at a mixed up thing the pieces come together and you can see mm. why it's happening you get right to the root of it you like being creative oh yes yeah oh yes i, I came by it honestly from mm -hmm. my ancestors i don't make any bones about that and it's a god-given thing it's uh but nevertheless i feel that most people are only operating at a fraction of their potential yeah. and the more spoiled they are the worse they are and the more useless they become it's sort of like the story about Jeeves the butler when they're cast up on a desert island he, uh, I forget the the uh, master's name but he was really Wooster I think. Wooster it is yeah Jeeves and Wooster yeah, yeah. and he, he it, Jeeves did it all he because he's used to doing it right. he's learning things and in doing it, serving others, you learn things. When you serve yourself, you don't learn much. Mm -hmm. But in, when you find out the truth of it is, there's more pleasure in sharing what you have. I mean, in everyday things, like the chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. I would have no delight in eating that by myself. But to see my wife enjoying it as much as I am, it would be doubly enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And we thank you for it. Just, we'll all thank you on behalf of her because she is like myself. She is not a perfect soul or anything, nor does she have, couldn't, I can't imagine living with a perfect person. Perfection is something we may seek, but we'll never really find it. It's just so, it's beyond our grasp. And it's boring. And it's boring. I mean, I had a friend once, Johnny Wilson, J.P. Wilson. He, John Pierce Wilson, the same as my father was Pierce, John Brewster. Okay. But he he, he had some of the loyalist blood in him too, and the uh, Pilgrim blood. And so uh, J.P. was he he joined the Air Force early, and he got uh, shot down over Germany, and he's prisoner of war, and he didn't like the Germans very much at first. But he got to see there just people like him that were looking after him. Mm -hmm. Now that would have changed if he'd been in the hands of the SS. Mm -hmm. There, the Gestapo. Any, when you fall afoul of the people, the coterie of people followed Hitler. You're living a precarious life. It's something like some of the politics of today. Yeah. Beware. Yeah, yeah I, I'm curious about that as well, George. And because you are the the first person, perhaps, that I've ever had the opportunity to speak with about. Um, some of the some of the undercurrents or some of the political tensions and systems that were at play in in the late 1930s that that led to the fascism and and the rise 
of Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. Well, I mean, he was a communist, so that's a little bit different. But um, do you notice any parallels between some of those ideologies and, and rhetoric then to what we see now in our current political systems? Yes, I, I regret to say that. The funniest thing is, it's not funny, it's not funny, ha-ha, it's no. peculiarly, mm-hmm. or it should be. I could see that then, I could see it when then the picture on a global scale because you have to be able to interpolate and then extrapolate, or vice versa, you can read it down. And when you do that and your mind works that way, you see the picture more clearly. Mm-hmm. And it was obvious that these are people, and people are people, and they always have been. They were doing it before Christ was born, mm-hmm. and they're still doing it because they haven't learned. They're slow learners. We're all slow. I was a slow learner, as a matter of fact. My grandfather said, don't worry. He said, most of the Brewsters are. He said, but you'll you'll probably live longer and be happier as a result, though. He said, you, you know, don't worry. Don't fret yourself, lad. Yes, uh, you asked me the question. I'm trying yeah. to stay. Yeah, you're so, talking so, about the political climate. Yeah, the so. political climate can come anywhere because people are people, and some have more than others. And when I think the figure they often say is when 90% of the wealth is in the hands of 10% of the people, there's an imbalance here. Those people aren't being. The, the young, none of them are being paid what they need. The ones who are on the lower end are not getting their just thing out of it because digging a ditch or laying drain pipe or all these things are necessary for the rest of us to, su- mm-hmm. to succeed. And the louts who are up above trying to give direction, often giving terrible direction because it usually leads more to them. They become more focused on themselves, their family needs, having all the blank garage full of cars and yachts out in the bay and all this and their Mm -hmm. own airplane. They don't need it. They don't need it to be happy. In fact, it didn't have, mostly never did bring them the happiness they want. No. That is a sad thing. Mm -hmm. But we are so human to do this. And it's keeping up with the Joneses might be the leading edge of it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It could be. It's not necessary. All I had to do to have people jealous of me was to do something better than they, if I did it better and I was being rewarded for it, people would plot some way to bring that down. Why do you think that might be? It's because all these things like greed, lust, jealousy reside in us all and it depends on how we deal with them. We all have them, but we deal with them in different ways. And some try to get even, and getting even can be a costly thing because it erodes your very soul. Mm-hmm. It's like a drop of poison every day. Can't you see that? Mm-hmm. When you forgive, and it's so hard when somebody really wronged you, but to forgive like your grandfather did. When he saw the man, he did his job, even if it meant death. Mm -hmm. He's my pick every time. Mm -hmm. I love people like that. There'll never be enough of them. And the German 
who might well have finished the job and then shot him. He didn't, apparently, because your grandfather lived to tell it. Mm -hmm. So maybe he learned a little. That would be a good thing, so he's noted also a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Under stress, too. So how does one, in any era, avoid or overcome those those feelings of those vices those feelings of of lust or envy or greed how did how does well, one i i can't maybe i don't know i'm not so smart that i know all the answers <laughs> you have some of so them I, so what i have to do is go somewhere where i trust the source hmm. and i go i found a book that's very valuable as i said i got my first one when i was nine years old I found it very, I could read it then, but now I need glasses, and now I need a magnifying glass on top of that. <laughs> Probably pretty small print in that book, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a small book, yeah. Yeah. But it's beautiful. I treasure it. I got it there. It says right on it, January 32. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I treasure it. I carried it with me. Mm -hmm. I wore it here, too, just in case. Hmm. So just having those values that you believe in and subscribe to and follow... Is, is something that keeps you from some of those vices. John, and, you're right on yeah. the money when you say that again. Just you people are uncanny anyway. You're probing questions. But I, uh, yes, just to have that, to have the concepts, to receive them. But you've got to open your mind to hear them and mm. use them to see the practical application every day. Do you know? When I came over the uh, on the weekend, we left the game early because it was cold. It was just freezing us, and we went out to get a taxi. And they whistled by. Everybody was, you know, <laughs> and I said, "You do better to call a dispatcher and get the taxi." We were tell them they brought us over. We want somebody in their taxi thing to bring us back. It means a little bit to them that we care about them. And they did. Hmm. And give them directions to get in here. We'll be and tell them what we look like. And Greg did all the above. And the man, they came in, or he came in as taxi driver. And he was an ordinary sort of a bloke. He could have been from anywhere, possibly the Middle East. And I said, you're like an angel from heaven. Did you know that? <laughs> and he said, no. And I said, you could have, all those people tried to stop you, but you came here because this was your play destination. I said, I thank you and your company. You represent the best of the best. And I said, where are you from anyway? And uh, no, was, uh, Colleen asked that from the back. What, where's your origin? And he said, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, you're like a brother to me, and I'm right proud to know you. And I said, so we went up, and I put my arm around him, and I said, tonight we are brothers. May we remain brothers. Canada needs more like you. If you know more of them back there, bring them over. Mm -hmm. We need this in this country. That's what makes Canada great, is people who serve each other. You're helping me right now because I'm old. I just can't tell you how much it means. Hmm. Go back and tell your company that somebody said something good. If they want to call me, here's my card. Mm -hmm. So he went to pay the guy, and the guy said, For you? 
oh no, he said, I can't take your money from people like you. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Greg came and told me that. And I said, well, I'm not trying to do a conversion job on him, but I did tell him about God, and he believes in God. Now, how he believes in it, that's his problem, not mine. But it's good enough to get us a little closer together where we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I wish we could all be like that. Yeah, George, that that delightful story with the, with the cab driver reminded me of the perhaps old phrase of just brotherly kindness and good old human decency. And those are two values, I think, that have slipped a little bit um, in recent times. And so I'm wondering, how do you think we can perhaps resurrect brotherly kindness and stop being so skeptical and perhaps even fearful of of people that are different than us? And how can we just look at people... As, as I had two God Sunday schools yeah. which were outstanding above mm. all the teachers. They had good and bad. Mostly weren't very good. They were, they were, they had a job and it provided an income. And but some of them were quite good. And there's a few exemplary ones. Mm-hmm. And I said, you only need a few, maybe one, who really can get your attention. I had that, but. I think we got to pass. I learned one thing. There's so many poor leaders around who scare people and make them do things out of fear. But I can see you have other talents that are far greater than this in my mind. And I think you'd do well to reconsider just to put down a list of the things you love and don't love and just see where they take you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you might find that you should be going in another direction because if you work where you're not needed or wanted, people look down on you because you can't do the job. Just as if you do it too well, they look down on you for being too good at it. Or why doesn't he have to work like I do? Because he's different. Whatever. But you do it. Go and learn and uh, learn how to learn. You can learn by observation, by being told is a way to actually apply the things you learn. Oh, now you're getting it. Now how to refine those things you've learned. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's mm-hmm. a secret. Yeah. To refine them and find better ways of doing simple things. <laughs> I, I love the, the whole nature, or I love the notion of taking practical knowledge that you've learned that's been passed along and applying it to other points or places in life. I can't tell you how nice I feel to hear that because it tells me that you have that kind of a mind, that you have that, that I'm with friends mm-hmm. and that I would like to keep you as friends because you're the kind of people I appreciate mm-hmm. because you're willing to learn from others. Well, yeah, and George, that, that's that's one of the reasons we're here today is is um, we know that your story and your outlook and your perspective and your 96 years that you've lived is is so useful for for the, for the younger generation, for all of us, but especially for those younger generations who are thinking about the kind of person they want to be. They're, they're all kind of younger generations. Yeah, they're all right? <laughs> they're, they're all pretty young, but yeah, but especially for the young people of all ages. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, they need this. They need the wisdom from the elders. 
You know, we all but do. But they need it spoken with love, with yeah. a little smile, with kindness. Yes, yes. Though I speak with the tongues of, oh, I could say it, I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and they live in my head. I've known it, need better nor done it in a ring and symbol. Can I hear the gift of prophecy, and I'm acquainted with the sacred mind of God. And can I ken all thing either at man may ken. Gonna e'en he sick and faith is conflict the hills for your lyrics. Gonna he all that and he need live in my hair. I'm knocked. Mm-hmm. Robbie Burns? The Holy Bible. No, oh. I was gonna say that's First Corinthians, right? Oh, wow. First Corinthians thirteen. Thirteen, yeah. It's a chapter on love. Yes. But see, yeah, it sounds like see, something Robbie Burns people, might have said. He does. Well, yeah. I, I gave it in a Scottish accent because exactly, yeah. because I, I, I read it like, uh, in fact, I was in Victoria and I had to sleep on the couch. And they had the bedroom in there, my uh, pastor and his wife. And as they, uh, she went by the night and she said, do you talk in your sleep? And I said, I, I think I do sometimes. And she said, you're talking in a Scottish accent. <laughs> And I said, well, I often think in a Scottish accent. Hmm. That's why. I said, when you think in whatever it is, then you learn it faster. Hmm. You don't just see word for word or trying to match things up. But when you get the feel, like in Spanish, you say about not like, I'm sorry. You say, lo siento. <laughs> I feel it. Mm-hmm. Come on, we can connect on that level. Yeah. The other we can't. We go <laughs> ricochet. <laughs> totally. I I have a question about your memory, and for someone who's ninety six years old, and for any of us, memory can be a challenge, and and for people aging, it's it's often one. And I wonder if if you have any anything you've learned over the years that has helped you have such a detailed, accurate memory? Yeah, I was brought up in that. More or less, we weren't uh, obvious Scots, but we had Scottish heritage because my mother's a clan member. My father wasn't. His family had been from Scotland, but that's generations ago, 13 to be precise to me. But no matter there were others, they married Scots, the Morrisons and the McPhersons and the this and the that and the Brewsters and all and all and all. And so they had these things called Cayleys. And they just, they're just they just a gathering, let's have a Cayley this weekend. And they'll come, okay, I'll bring some, I'll bring some Chapatees, I'll bring some Bashneeps, I'll bring a wee bit of Haggis, and what about a wee dram? Oh yeah, we must have a wee dram. And have you got any? Have you got a, a piper? Maybe me? No, that's all right. We'll get a dancer anyway. We could get a fiddler. You know, it's all like that. And they get together, and they're all sitting around the room, and they all they'll sing. They'll tell stories. This is the thing. They tell stories, and they tell them over and over. My wife will say to me, uh, "You told me that one before." And I said, "When was that? About ten years ago." Just a, a cool thing that that I noticed though that that these these parties or gatherings were called Kayleys. Yes. And I have a, a friend named Kaylee and she's her life is a party 
and so yeah, and, and she is Scottish um, yeah. Linda's daughter yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's a nice little correlation that there cool. oh isn't it though yeah isn't it that's the way it's supposed to be <laughs> and you see it they'll spell it all kinds of ways K-A-Y-L-E-E or well, they can do what they want it's all <laughs> right. let's look the girls it makes them all a little bit different and yet they're all so delightful <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so George uh, you, you're such a you're such a delightful person and, and I don't use that word with very many people um, you you're, you've you've had a smile on your face this whole time you, you've been chuckling you're, you're so full of joy and appreciation for life and sometimes I think that's a different image than sometimes you get when you watch the movies and you hear the stories of the, the men who came back from war and they just were never quite the same and they never were able to kind of find themselves. And I just, I wondered how, how are you able to just, to have this joy and this love for life? What do you credit that to? Forgiveness. Hmm. Forgiveness is like taking bad medicine. Well, if not, if you don't forgive, and you say, I can never forgive that. You make an so I'm very virtuous, but I can't forgive that. Mm-hmm. Then, then you're not quite virtuous enough yet, <laughs> and you probably never will be. With the, with the, who will be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to take a look in the mirror and smile. Mm-hmm. See, you got a lot to smile. Some you might as well make the most of it. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Is because thankfulness, but to, forgiveness to me, I might as well say to be wronged. You could be wronged inadvertently, that's one thing. Or you could be wronged because somebody just in a moment of something. Or you could be wronged for devious ways to have somebody try to undercut you because they don't like it that you, you're going past them. They'll do it. They do it in sports all the time. They do it in, in theaters. They do it all over. Mm-hmm. There are... Uh, there's a kind of a jealousy amongst the professionals of this and that. And they all want to be somebody else. Well, it's hard to be kind of happy with what you got, but that's all you got. You might as well make the most of it. Oh, yeah, I see it. <laughs> and I say, I ain't much, but I'm all I got. And I'm <laughs> kind of glad. But God gives me a chance to make it a little better every day. Mm. And one of the ways is to say, for somebody has really wronged me and tried to do something that's going to be hurt, career-threatening and everything, is to say, I forgive you. I feel so sorry for you people that you would be driven to such desperation. You're, a lot of the, them react out of fear. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who really need to control, it's out of fear. They're fear that they lose control. I never was in control. God's in control. Mm-hmm. And I got. He's telling me what I got to do to keep, do my end of the thing. It's like pass the ammunition, the whole nine yards or whatever it is. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. <laughs> do your part of it though. You pass the ammunition. Right. Don't leave it all up to the Lord. You'd be like the guy who was on the rooftop. You know when the flood came. Yeah. You know the story. Yeah, I've heard this one. We told. Maybe we told it. This and, is a good one. But yeah. you heard it. Tell it. It's a good one. Well, he's on the rooftop, and, he, <laughs> and here he is. He's been flooded out, and he loses, he's liable to lose his life. <laughs> and along come these two people in a canoe, and they say, come on, we'll come up close, hop in, 
no he said I'm waiting the Lord will do it for me <laughs> and then some people later come in a rowboat and they say you better get in now your house is just about so I, no I'm waiting for the Lord and then then a helicopter comes over and throws a rope and he says I'm waiting for the Lord <laughs> and he calls on the Lord again. The Lord said, well, I sent three crews out to help you. And he said, you rejected them all. Yeah. You're on your own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you got to recognize the opportunity that seems to be fortuitousness or, or uh, serendipity or something, some nice cozy little word. It's not. Mm-hmm. And if we must recognize them for what they are and seize them, and say, this gave us a chance, it's a little mistake, it could have been disaster, it could have been this or this, could have been, who cares? You came here and now I have the opportunity to talk to you for a second time, which makes me very, very happy because you're delightful people to talk to. And thank you. Yeah, George, it's our pleasure. And, and I love how you mentioned forgiveness because you know it's the whole idea of when we forgive, we can move on. We can move on, right? yes. Yeah, and, and and speaking of moving on, I mean, the war was was seventy five years ago. You've you've lived seventy five years, and then that moving on to being able to live a full seventy five years apart from perhaps a very difficult time, um, and I think that's an important lesson for all of us. Is is um, you've lived mm-hmm. a lifetime apart from the war, you know, yes. but yeah. often it comes back to you know, but it's still important to remember that each year. And, and I know you're going to be at the Cenotaph on Monday in Duncan. Yes, will you be there? Um, I am going to be there. So, oh, good. Um, so I will see you there. <clears throat> you know what they've asked me to do? What, yeah, I was going to ask you what you're doing this year. Would, I don't, can I give you some poetry? Yeah, please do. In, this is by Colonel John McRae, who is a Canadian uh, medical, uh, military medical surgeon, actually. And he wrote it just shortly before he died. He wrote this. In Flanders fields the poppies blow Between the crosses row on row That mark our place While in the sky the lark Still bravely singing fly Scarce heard amidst the guns below We are the dead. Short days ago we lived Felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with we who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow on Flanders Fields. I am going to pause and then I will recite the act of remembrance. You can join with me in the last four lines. I'm going to repeat it at the end. They shall not grow old as we who are left grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun And in the morning, we will remember them. We We will will remember remember them. them. They asked me for one more. Do you want it? 
Please. This is by John Gillespie McGee. He died at the age of 19. He got his wings in Canada. He's training in his wings. He died in a Spitfire. He's killed in a Spitfire. But he, he is of missionary parents. He wrote, he was in such exuberance at the act of flying. And he, oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter-silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of. Wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence hovering there. I've chased the shouting winds along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up the long delirious burning blue where never I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace where never lark nor even eagle flew. And while with silent lifting mind I've trod the high untrespassed sanctity of space put out my hand and touched the face of God. No, we can't see him, we can't. But the fact is that God is a spirit that embraces us all every day. He is to be seen in the smallest little insects I might have mentioned, like the columbola. The smallest, they're the most numerous thing in the world and very few people have ever seen one. Very few. Much less than 1%. Much less. And yet they exist. And they are the basis of the food chain in the ocean. And I suspect for the hummingbirds get their share around here too. They need a little protein along with that sweet stuff, you know. <laughs> it's amazing how things work out so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And yes... Uh, that's it. And so, George, just as those poets' incredible words live on through through the work that they have done, so too will will your voice live on through um, what you've given us today. And, and I am incredibly appreciative of that. And if you were to speak for those who served in in World War Two, in World War One, in really any time where where they've sacrificed themselves and and given up their freedom and and sometimes their lives for for others, what memory do you think we should carry on of their sacrifice and and of what they've given? I think we might feel like McCray says. To you we pass the torch. Be yours to hold it high. You can accomplish far more than you ever dreamed of. The poets are expressing it in different ways. Mm -hmm. More that you have not dreamed of. You can do things. Don't say, I can't do this or I can't eat that. Why? Because I I don't like it. Did you ever try it? No. Mm -hmm. Come on. We hear it all every day. Mm-hmm. You can you can learn new things every day, and the more new new things you learn every day, the happier you're going to be, because you will discover yourself in the process, and you'll discover 
that although none of us are much by ourselves together, we can make one heck of a big difference in what's going on in this world. We can reach other people and inspire them to do their very best to make sure they're on the right track though, that they got the right target, not somebody else's target. Because you won't get any credit for it, but always shoot your own target, make sure, and aim for the bullseye. You will, if you miss it, you'll be a lot closer than you were the last time. Well, and George, you're a perfect example of learning something new. Here you are on our podcast. Yeah. You have never done this before. and. And yet you're eager to throw on the headphones and lean into the mic and share your story. And so what a tremendous example you've been your entire life, um, not just as, as a soldier in the war, but for the last 75 years and all the things you've done. And, and today you've given a gift of legacy. You will give a gift that will far outlast you, your story and your wise words and, and said with love and joy and, and gratitude. And, and we thank you. Uh, humbly, we thank you for, for, for sitting at your table and, and hearing your words. And thank you for honoring us and all of our listeners with, with your life well lived. As I used to tell people learning to swim, if I can do it, any of you can. I'd be in my 40s there in their teens and 20s. If I can run up those stairs, so can you. If I can do it, if you're not going to let an old man, I call myself an old man, <laughs> I want you to know that. You should be saying not what you can't do. Show me and you'll find new horizons every day and you'll have to reset your apparatus for higher strive ever onward, upward. Well, George, on this day of remembrance, uh, I will be thinking of my own grandfather, for one, who uh, was serving in the Canadian Navy and off the coast of England, his ship was torpedoed and, and went down and he just happened to be sitting on the deck and the next thing he knew he was in the water. He didn't know what happened. He was fortunate that he was, he was not below deck and many men went down with that ship that day. And so I'll be thinking of of him and and in his memory and and the gratitude I have for for that which he gave and and I'll be thinking of you as well George and I'll I'll be down in Victoria at the cenotaph there and uh and I'm so glad that John will be up here with you and um yeah it's it's an absolute honor to to sit with someone who had uh who was willing to make that sacrifice that selfless sacrifice that we we don't need more war in our society today there's plenty of that and there's plenty of conflict but we we could use a little bit more self-sacrifice and and that's one thing that you've reminded us today and we will we will do that in your honor well i feel such a sense of inadequacy in some ways sometimes but Whatever I am, if I can do anything that would help others along, just another person along the way, I'm well repaid. Thank you so much for being you, being the way you are, for caring for other people, for thinking ways of maybe making your life a little easier. 
perhaps perhaps it will help somebody. I suspect it may help many if they have a chance. They're willing to listen. That's our hope. Well, that's the episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you liked what you heard here, check out the website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That's where you can subscribe, check out the show notes. If we have one request, we'd ask you to leave us a kind review and perhaps share this episode. It's not because we have fragile egos. Well. But because we want other great people like you to benefit. Speaking of great people, we have a list of people we want to thank. We've got our senior technical advisor, Andy Robertson, our media partner and web designer, Sticky Media, and of course, our host and snack coordinator, Judy Langford. Oh, peanut butter cookies. You can continue the conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast and on Twitter at Obstacle Pod. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Keep pushing through those obstacles.